Let's pray again. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege it's been for me to address these issues. I believe you're using it as we are just at the beginning of this, this church adventure, just one year in. What a privilege we have to establish some priorities as a group as to how we are going to honor your word, how we're going to handle it in a way that lets it become uh, transformational to us. And so I pray that you'll guide uh, what we have to share today as well. pray it'll be helpful. pray that the Holy Spirit will be present and teach and enlighten and convict. And we will leave here knowing not only that we learned, but that we heard from you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. We're in the middle, in the final stretch, actually, of a series we've been doing throughout the winter about the Bible. And this week we're concluding a sermon we began last week, which, as I shared, was as much a seminar about the Bible as it is an actual sermon. In fact, it's a good way of me showing you how I prepare sermons, but also how I believe we are to make the most of God's Word. We've laid a very careful foundation of the security and confidence we can have in the Bible, that it is from God, and it, it does address everything that we need about faith and life and how we can be assured of that. You can go back and pick up those sermons online um, or on iTunes and, and the Journey podcast as well. Uh, and then we talked about the good that the Bible's meant to bring to our lives, why it's so central to our spiritual experience. And then last week we started talking about how to make the most of it. And I'm going to finish that up this week. And I've been promising, I'd spent some time talking about Bible translations, how we got them, what's a good translation, what are some other tools. I'm going to take some time and do that with you. But I, I pray and trust and hearing from people that God is using this time to help deepen our understanding and trust and now my hope is over the next couple of weeks as we wrap this up to take you beyond being more confident to being actual students of the Word of God yourself. So that's what we're going to try to do over the next couple of weeks. I want to just start today in Romans chapter 1. Eventually we're going to be back in Joshua 1. Last week we were using that as a sample text to explain how we go from taking ancient words into our modern life and making sure that the message God intended not only reaches us but changes us. But I just want to start with Romans 1 verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, and what he's about to quote is from the prophet Habakkuk, Old Testament scripture, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. I want you to imagine that you are hopping around the television channels, and you come across this pastor looking at the camera, and he says, if you send me a check, I'll be able to forgive you your sin. And then he puts on the screen a price list, this sin for this amount of money. And he says to you, I have the spiritual authority to make this transaction on your behalf, and so here's the price per sin tells you where to send your check. Even the most simple view of Christianity would know that there's something dramatically wrong about that. 
But that is exactly what happened in the 16th century under Pope Leo X by a man named Tetzel, who was trying to raise money for the great basilica in Rome, as well as the cost of buying his spiritual position. It was basically a pay-as-you-sin price list called indulgences. You could maintain a clean record with the divine no matter what you did, so long as you had the money to cover it. Here's some of the, the price list. Fornication was a mere nine shillings. To kill a commoner, well, that was seven shillings and a sixpence. If you murdered a wife or a parent, that was ten shillings and a sixpence. Imagine that this is what the church did. Now, Tetzel himself went a little farther with the idea of indulgences, but the church in that time condoned indulgences, especially for the dead. For a price, you could buy anybody out of uh, eternal punishment. It was out of that setting that a group of Christian leaders came against the church because that was just one of many things that had grown in this corrupt organization that was as much a political, a government force as it, as it had at one time been a spiritual community. And there was a list of some 20 principles that a group of Christian leaders put out that they called, quote, certain principles founded upon the truth of God's Word. Number 14 said, a man is justified by faith without works and simply by grace. Stating that as a simple truth in God's word cost their life. They and their families were dragged out of their households and given the choice of either turn back and support the church on these policies or face punishment. Now imagine if saving your own life and the life of your family was as simple as saying, okay, God's word might be wrong. Just imagine if it was that simple. How would you do Their trust in God's Word was so profound, they chose death. Not only them, but their children. Their death was a gift to you and I because of their struggle. Today, we have God's Word in our language, and it is perpetually speaking to all those who are willing to open it and let it speak life to them. It's a powerful thought, and it it makes us wonder if we really understand what Scripture teaches about the importance of itself and the importance of handling it rightly. Let's review some of the verses that we've talked about over the last few weeks. Let's say this together from 2 Timothy 3. All Scripture is God-breathed, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. All of it is. And then uh, we've been for several weeks in 2 Timothy 2.15. Let's say this together. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, and who correctly handles the word of truth. And that passage, you may recall, was in the middle of a pretty lengthy teaching by Paul about those that were not handling the Word of God properly. And he literally said they were using God's Word for ungodliness. There is a way you can use the Bible that actually destroys people. We are witnessing it in our day and age. People that are using the Word of God actually to lead people astray. And that's a a hard thing to say, but I, I say it because Paul said it. What we need to do is to be vigilant about it, to be relational. Out of that relationship, we need to be craftsmen of the Word of God. We need to be skilled in how we handle the Word. 
The actual phrase, rightly handling the word of truth, is a, is a craftsman term for cutting a straight line. Let me, just, uh, let me just implicate myself in this a little bit. I think when I was younger and I was traveling and speaking and I had some heady opportunities in my youth to speak at youth conventions, a lot of large <laughs> gatherings, I'll admit that um, I bought my own press during that period, thought an awful lot about my opinion, and uh, I, I can now look back and confess to a, a lot of arrogance. And I would also confess that there were times that I had a point I wanted to make that I thought was really good. So I spent all sorts of time finding what Bible verse I could use to make that point, whether or not it was an appropriate use of that passage or not. This is the second church where I've had the privilege of teaching week in and week out. And uh, as I've grown not only in the skills of that, uh, such as they are, the transforming journey for me by being in God's Word week in and week out, there's just the privilege of having my first and foremost priority to be in to be in these words, has had th- that effect that we read earlier of God just transforming me in ways that have been humbling. And I find myself more committed to rightly handling it than ever. To be one who teaches is to take on a very serious job. James speaks to people like me and to anyone else here who would ever desire to teach the Word. Not many of you should presume to be teachers. You will be judged more strictly. This is just a little opportunity for me to share my heart with you and let you know that I take very seriously that my job is not to sound smart. My job is not to give you clever ideas about what I think. My job is to let God's Word say what it's meant to say to you. And sometimes that means hard stuff. Thank God, most often, it's about grace (laughs) and goodness. But I I do take that very seriously. I'm not perfect at it, and I'm I'm thankful for God that doesn't require perfection, but does require commitment and discipline for those of us that teach it. But it requires that equally of you in your own journey. And that's why we've been looking at these four questions that we need to ask in order to take ancient terms to life. What Technically, we call exegesis, to draw out of the text its meaning. There's a related term called hermeneutics. Why don't you learn them so you sound smart? Exegesis. Exegesis. Hermeneutics. There you go. So now, when you're about to go have your devotions announced to your roommates or your family, I'm going to go do some exegesis, experience some hermeneutics. So hermeneutics is the broad category. Another way to look at it is exegesis is getting the original meaning of the text. Hermeneutics is applying it to our modern setting. It's another way of looking at it. It really boils down to this. What did God say then? What is God therefore saying to me now? To rightly handle God's word is to always be working through that process. We suggested four questions to help us get through that. The first was, what did it mean to the original audience? You need to read carefully. You need to get the context. What's the full story of it? We showed you passages where we have traditionally and and, um, contemporarily misused passages by simply not reading carefully, not getting the backstory. You have to take into account the type of literature, wisdom literature, the Proverbs. It is a very different thing than narrative or history very different thing than the law or the epistles. And so 
understanding that is an important thing to understanding what's being said. Then the second thing we need to do is ask, how are we different than the original audience? What's the gap that exists that keeps this from necessarily relating immediately to us? And that's everything from the culture of the day, the politics, difficulties in the language, the specific circumstances or setting in which what's being said takes place, whether or not it's part of the Old Testament, the Mosaic Covenant, before the cross, before the covenant of grace in which we live today. All these things impact and present a gap for us in relating completely to what was being said. We spent time in in Joshua 1 looking at some of those differences. The third thing then to ask is, what are the eternal truths or principles that translate to us today? And we suggested these questions. Are there similarities with us? Besides noting the differences, what's similar about their circumstances? Are they experiencing persecution for their faith? How does that relate to us in our modern times? Are they in an affluent culture? Are they in a um, pluralistic culture in terms of religions? There are many similarities that we can find with cultures as well that can help us find the truth. When we're looking for what is the principle that's being taught that transcends the specific circumstance in the text, we're looking for one of three things or a combination of them. We're looking for a doctrine. What in this text is taught that at all times is true of God? How should my belief system be shaped by this? The second thing we need to ask is, is there a broad principle that applies to my life as it did for them. For instance, in, this, in the story of Joshua 1, they're about to head into the promised land. It's a whole new generation and new spiritual leadership. The specific promises God makes Joshua about himself as their leader don't translate to us per se. The promise that they're going to take the land and have victory over it, we, we don't have a circumstance like that in any of our lives where that word from God translates specifically. This is God's land. He intends to move Israel there. He's very clear about that. But we can apply the principles of those people to new challenges, being faithful to what God's called us to, being courageous. We can, as leaders, put ourselves in Joshua's place and take heart of what it means to be strong and courageous. So there are principles that we can draw out when we face the unknown, when we face the unsurmountable. There are principles that are taught in Joshua 1 about being committed to the Word of God as part of making sure that God goes with us wherever we go. So these are the things that we can take from Joshua and apply to our lives, principles. Or the third area is a direct command. Is this something that the Bible says Christians are to do or are not to do? Imperatives that we know are not only true for the original hearers, but for us today. So those are three very different types of things that we can draw from a text. Are there doctrines? Is there a general principle that applies to my life? Is there a direct command for a follower of God that I need to pay attention to and to obey? Just let me distinguish again between principle and command. A command, we just do. We do because God said it. Or we don't do because God said not to. That's the clear thing. A principle is something that we apply broadly in our life. The principle of generosity taught in the New Testament is a broad principle that we are to apply generously 
uh, and broadly in our lives. So that's the example. Whatever the principal bridge is should be true both for their time and for ours. Fourth, it should be confirmed by the rest of Scripture. Whenever you have somebody that goes into the Bible and claims to find a particular passage and say, this tells us a truth that is only found here and only we have discovered it, that's a dangerous person because Scripture always confirms itself. We always start with what is clear in the Bible and interpret what is unclear with what is clear. One of the things you'll see a lot of cults do who misuse the Bible is take a passage that is unclear and they'll read into it an erroneous application out of that draw a very extensive doctrine. And you read the text and you go, well, I don't really see that here. And then they kind of explain their view of the symbolism of it. And you realize they've made a pretty big leap. But if they can convince you to take that leap with them, then they can take you all sorts of places in terms of false belief and practice. See, anything that's unclear in the Bible always has to come under what is clear in the Bible. We call that interpreting the implicit with the explicit. See? So we need to be clear of that. The scripture ought to confirm the principle. And then finally, where do we see Christ in it? We've, we've learned and we'll continue to press this, that uh, the Bible from start to finish, as Jesus himself said, is his story. That from Moses through the prophets, uh, our telling of the Christ, preparing the way and promising and, and uh, being metaphors and analogies for the Christ who would come. And then, of course, the Gospels are about his time on earth. And Acts is about the building of his church. And the epistles are about growing in Christ. And the book of Revelation is a very confusing book. But it's about whatever is in front of us. If you're going to start reading the Bible, can I encourage you not to start with Revelations? I mean, there's a reason why it's at the end of the book. It's like reading a great mystery novel backwards. I want to give you a two-word summary of the book of Revelation. Ready? We win. Then finally, we ask the fourth question, how do we apply it to our lives? Based on all that. Just leaf through these real quickly. How do I apply it to every Christian, for all of us, what's true for all of us, and what might be true for me personally in my circumstance? Just let me remind you, there's only one meaning in the text, and that's what God put in there because he's the author. So you don't read your own meaning into the text. You want to get what the text says. That's what it means to rightly handle it. But how we apply it to all of our lives is where all the great variety is based on our circumstances and our experience. And uh, the particular thing that God's put in front of us, be it a challenge or a, a new calling or a relationship or a major decision. See, there's a variety of ways that God's word is breathed into our lives once we know what it actually says for us. And then based on those three things that I talked about, we should draw out principle. There's three other questions we should ask. What should I believe? What am I to really commit to in my belief system for what I've heard? What should I change in my life based on the command of God or the principle I've learned? What needs to change? And then finally, what are we to do? What do I need to do with my life based on this? You don't properly study the Bible if it doesn't translate into change. That's what James meant in James 1.22. Let's say this together. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. 
has to translate into change. That takes us right back to the original metaphor. John, in the middle of the book of Revelation, the giant angel preaching from the word of God, John trying to just take notes so he could get it all in his head, and the voice saying to him, stop writing, just give up. Go to him. And so he does, and the angel says, take it and eat it. Don't just read it. Don't catalog it. Don't just write about it. Don't analyze it. Eat it. Let it metabolize into life action and change. That's the importance of it. Now, I mean it when I tell you, every one of you should be doing this with God's Word. We are all called to this. Now, you might ask yourself, well, what about just reading devotionally, <laughs> you know, or, or reading for encouragement? What about just reading worshipfully or prayerfully? Yeah, I think all of those have a place, but you can't let that be your primary diet of the Word of God. That's like eating nothing but appetizers your whole life. Where would your body be if you didn't get down to the real meal? Pretty frail. And so to the extent that you only read the Bible devotionally and casually and finding topics that interest you, that ought to tell you how frail your spiritual journey is. You need to get to the meat, get to the heart of the Word. My favorite book uh, on this subject currently, and you can tell I named the series after it, is Eugene Peterson's book, Eat This Book. He writes this about exegesis. Exegesis is the furthest thing from pedantry. You know what that means? Stodgy, intellectual, effort, dry. It's the furthest thing from that. Exegesis is an act of love. It loves the one who speaks the words enough to want to get the words right. It respects the words enough to use every means we have to get the words right. Exegesis is loving God enough to stop and listen carefully to what he says. It follows that we bring the leisure and the attentiveness of lovers to this text, cherishing every comma and semicolon, relishing the oddness of this preposition, delighting in the surprising placement of this noun. You see, lovers don't take a quick look, get a message or a meaning, and then run off and talk endlessly with their friends about how they feel. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's something that I just strongly want to encourage you to think about. Here's what I'm going to do because we have communion coming. I, I piled up some resources for you, and I'm going to talk about them next week. I got off on a few things that I think God directed me to share with you, so we'll pick up the rest next week. Uh, if you love God, you love his book. And if you love his book, you love his Jesus because it is from cover to cover his story. Father, as we come to your table, reminding us that the central story of this great book of books is that you loved us enough to not leave us lost in our sin, but to step into human form, to live the perfect life as a human, to die, to take on the death of the cross, but as God to rise again from the dead and to prove that we can have victory over it in you. So as we celebrate your death for our sins, Father, may our faith be rekindled. May our love for you be restored. May our intent to offer ourselves as living sacrifices be renewed. In Jesus' name, amen.